Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray, Lord, that you will teach us and guide us and open our eyes and open our ears to have the ability to discern your will as revealed in this passage. Lord, may we see um, how great you are, may we see how great your grace is, and may we see how great our need for your grace is for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 uh, is where we will be resuming our study of, uh, of Genesis. And believe it or not, this passage will actually tie into Christmas. Uh, we're not doing a Christmas series per se this year, although we'll have a, certainly have a Christmas message on Christmas Eve. Uh, but this passage, believe it or not, will tie into Christmas, I promise you. Is it possible for sinful man to threaten or to thwart the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes? Is it possible for man to thwart or threaten God's will from being done? Now, the answer that you get to a question like that may depend upon who you ask. Some will actually say that God has neither ordained nor decreed each and every detail in the time, space, dimension, in the whole universe, that is to say, and that His, his will and His plans and His purposes may be thwarted because they're contingent upon the decisions of man. But, since God is really good at predicting things based on all that He knows, there's a good chance that His will will work out in the end as God intends. Now, I hope you don't believe that. I hope I wouldn't get that answer from any of you. This is a position called open theism. It is heretical. It is false. According to the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, open theism asserts that, quote, because God loves us and desires that we freely choose to reciprocate His love, He has made His knowledge of and plans for the future conditional upon human actions. Though omniscient, God does not know what we will freely do in the future, end quote. Now, I don't know how you can affirm that God is omniscient and yet doesn't know something at the same time, but open theism posits belief in a puny and powerless God, and they also posit the inherent goodness and sovereign rule of man. Can you imagine a world like that in which God wasn't in charge of each and every detail? Can you imagine where he didn't know what chaos could possibly be coming, what could possibly be coming against him or his plans or his purposes, and so he would have to adjust accordingly? Can you imagine how terrifying a world like that would be? A world in which God's sovereignty over humanity is trumped by, God, by human uh, sovereignty and human autonomy against God. Now, while proponents of this view claim to be Christian, this view ultimately sees man, and not God, but they see man as the greatest force in the universe. Again, this view is absolutely false. This view is heretical, and the testimony of Scripture is clear from beginning to end. Nothing can stand in the way of God's plans. God doesn't make His plans contingent or conditional upon anything but the counsel of his own will. God doesn't base his decisions, his plans, his purposes on anything except what he desires to do because he is sovereign over it all. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, sinful man has been under the delusion that we are free to live however we please by our own rules, that, we write the, that we're the ones who write the rule book. And that only we can determine our destiny. In the poem Invictus, you have probably heard it, or you're at least familiar with the philosophy that drives it, I am sure. The poet pridefully declares, quote, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is the rallying cry of sinful man. That is the rallying cry of a heart that is far, far away from God. 
It's the rallying cry of unregenerate man throughout history, throughout human history since the fall. And many have taken it even a step further, claiming to actually be God. The pharaohs of ancient Egypt, they claimed to be, and their culture believed them to be gods in flesh. The same can be said of Roman emperors. They claimed to be gods. They were believed by the people to be gods. And that's one of the reasons that the first century church was persecuted the way that they were. They would not hail Caesar as Lord. They would not worship Caesar. And so they were actually considered to be atheists, if you can believe that, because they rejected all the Greek gods and they rejected the emperors as being gods. Here's what the Bible declares. And it declares it emphatically and it declares it from beginning to end. There is only one God and He alone is sovereign over all of creation including all of human affairs. For example, Romans chapter 13 tells us that God is the one who ordains governments. On the surface, that's not how it looks, but the Bible is very clear about that. That God is sovereign over this human affair. God is sovereign over human affairs. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 30 says, There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He, that is God, does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. In Job 42, verse 2, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted these verses. This is just the tip of the iceberg. This is the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end. And these verses will all be exemplified by our passage today, which is found in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. The main point of this passage is that even the greatest efforts of sinful man cannot and will not ever even begin to thwart the will, plans, or purposes of God. So we start with verses 1 to 4 in Genesis chapter 11. Verses 1 to 4 say, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now if you remember, the previous chapter was this crazy genealogy, all kinds of names that were really difficult to pronounce. It was, it was, the whole chapter was just a genealogy, but what we need to understand as we come to this, is that these events don't follow after chapter 10. Instead, this is somewhere in the midst of chapter 10, as these nations were dispersing, in fact, before they even dispersed. This is an event that took place early on in the generations after Noah's sons. As people started moving out of the area where the ark had landed, the people were still all speaking the same language. And it appears that there were not even different dialects among them. They all spoke the same language. They all had the same words for the same things. They all used the same dialects. And so as they migrated west, they came upon a plain in this land that would be called Shinar. And they all decided that this would be a great place to settle. Now, let me say this. This isn't necessarily a bad decision. It's not necessarily a bad decision to, uh, to settle on a plain by itself. For one thing, uh, one of the advantages of, of living on a plain is it's very easy to capture water because the plain is, is flat, so the water doesn't go away from you. Uh, secondly, the, the soil tends to be very rich, very fertile in a plain because water isn't carrying it away. Now, compare this to, to building a city on a, a mountain or on a hillside, and now you've got problems because when you're trying to collect water, what happens to it? 
It goes away from you. And so if, you're not, if you don't have something already in place, having a water supply is going to be difficult. And by the way, as the water goes down the hill, what does it do? It erodes the soil. It takes away all the nutrients of the soil. So living on a plain isn't necessarily a bad decision. It's an ideal location for some people to settle. But there's a problem here which is presented immediately. The problem isn't that some people settled on this plain in Shinar. The problem is that all of them did. And by doing so, they weren't doing what God had instructed. They weren't doing what God had demanded. And so they were intentionally disobeying God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We learned in the genealogy of the previous chapter that there was a man named Nimrod who was the grandson of Noah's son Ham who founded a kingdom called Babel. This opening passage in this chapter is about the city of Babel being established. So the important thing for us to realize here right off the bat is that this settlement of all the people on the face of the earth at that time was an act of rebellion against God. They were deliberately rebelling against God and defying His command to fill the earth. Now, if you think about it, what, in our study of Genesis, what was the last thing that happened when all of humanity was defying God? He wiped them out. He brought the flood upon the earth in an act of divine sovereign justice. He saved Noah and his family, but Everybody else, everybody else was wiped out. And that wasn't that long ago for these people who are settling on this plain in Shinar. These were the great-grandchildren of Noah and the great-great-grandchildren and maybe even another generation after that. So what we see here is that this is an act of rebellion against God's will, against God's plans and His purposes. And so what we see is that this is a sin, All of humanity is gathered together in sin against God. And as the community starts to settle, they come up with this great idea to start baking bricks. And instead of using the stones in the region, they make make bricks. And I, I would have to say it would make a lot more sense to use stones since the stones of the region are actually known for being very, very sturdy, very, uh, very hard, and they're plentiful. They're like everywhere, right? But they don't use them. Instead, they bake bricks. They're relying on something they make rather than the resources around them that have been provided by God. Instead of using stone, they bake bricks, and a lot of them. Verse 4 tells us the purpose for these bricks. The people devise what they consider to be a, a great plan. It must have seemed brilliant to them at the time. They're going to make this, this city here on this, on this plain where everybody in the world can live. They're going to build this city, and in this city, they'll have a great tower that would reach all the way up to heaven. And we see here that there are basically two things motivating, two, two reasons motivating them. Look at verse number 4. Their first motivation is to make a name for themselves. That's that's their primary motivation. They want to make a name for themselves. And number two, to avoid being dispersed throughout all the earth. The idea here, the fact that they, they made the bricks on their own, the fact that they are disobeying God, the fact that they are trying to make a name for themselves, the idea here is that they don't want to rely on God. They don't think they need God. They want to get to the point where they just are free and autonomous on their own. They're going to build a tower to heaven. They're going to be God's equal. That's the idea there. As they build it in, build the the tower into heaven, they will be God's equal. They can work and they can toil and they can build and they can put forth all of their effort until He's no longer above them anymore. They'll be building more than a tower. They'll be building a legacy for themselves. They will be the ones who are remembered as the people who leveled the playing field between fallen man 
and holy God. Don't be mistaken here, friends. There is nothing inherently wrong with building a tower. It's not that, there, that it's sinful in and of itself to build a skyscraper or something like you know, the, the Seattle, the Space Needle. The people who design and build skyscrapers around the world aren't necessarily sinning by, by testing and advancing modern architecture. No, that, that's, that's perfectly fine in and of itself. Building a tower that reaches into the sky isn't sinful in and of itself. What's sinful is, number one, wanting to be equal with God. What's sinful is, number two, wanting to glorify themselves rather than God by building a a legacy for themselves, by making a name for themselves. And what's sinful is, number three, refusing to obey God's command to fill the earth. Now, you might ask, what's wrong with wanting to be equal with God? Everything is. Everything is wrong with wanting to be equal with God. Let's start with the fact that it's just impossible. God is infinite. We are finite. He has no beginning. We, we do, right? He, he's all-powerful. We're, we're not. He's holy. We're sinners. God is self-existent. That is, He doesn't rely on anyone or anything for His existence. We do. We do. We, we rely on God to sustain the universe every second of our existence. Do you realize what would happen if God stopped sustaining the universe for just one second? Just one second, everything would disintegrate into a pile, into a a heap of nothingness. And by the way, this is the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. They wanted to be equal with God. He gave them everything that they could possibly need, but He didn't give them everything that they could possibly want because they could possibly want to be His equal. And that was sin. Not to mention it was impossible. What's wrong with wanting to make a name for themselves? To understand that this, to, to answer this question, you, you have to know and accept what humanity's primary purpose for existing is. You have to know why we exist. It is not to create a legacy that's all about us. Your purpose is not to be so great. Your purpose is not to be so rich. Your purpose is not to be so anything, so powerful that people will remember you for those things for generations to come. That is not your purpose. And you might say, well, why not? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that your primary purpose is not to make your name known. Your primary purpose is to make Christ's name known. What's wrong is that your purpose is not to glorify yourself. Your purpose is not to bring glory and honor and and prestige to yourself. It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Think about it. These people who settled on this plane, they, they aren't interested in glorifying God. They're not interested in fulfilling the purpose that God has set forth for humanity. They're only interested and making a name for themselves. They're only interested in glorifying themselves. And make no mistake about it, sinful man is still living with that desire deeply, deeply embedded in his heart. So what's wrong with avoiding being dispersed over the face of the whole earth? Well, I mean, maybe they were scared to go out into uncharted territory. This is, this is a place where, where nobody has, has been since the flood. Nobody has, has been to this land. Nobody knows it's there. Nobody knows what's beyond this place. So maybe they were scared to go out into uncharted territory. Maybe they just felt like it's better for us to, to find safety in numbers than for us to venture out and, and risk all of us dying. Ah, but the cure for any fear like that, any such fear, is to fear rightly. The cure for your fears is to fear rightly, to fear God, and to trust that nothing can and nothing will happen that God does not sovereignly ordain. To avoid being dispersed over the face of the earth, whatever their reason is, whatever their motivation was, was contrary to God's will for them. And these people were arrogant. 
These people were prideful. Not only did they not love God, not only did they not fear God, but apparently they did not even know God. They thought that he was someone who was just like them, only living up, you know, one floor up, and that they could get to that level. They did what people are still doing today. They created a God in their own image. A God who reflected all of their values. A God who was not any greater than them by nature necessarily. A God who was puny. A God who was powerless. And they sought to exalt themselves and become His equal. We clearly see the foolishness of fallen man here. We, we clearly see how foolish these people are. For starters, if you want to build a tower that reaches all the way to heaven, why would you start on a plane? Why wouldn't you go to the top of a mountain or something and get a, get a, a couple thousand foot head start? Wouldn't that make more sense? But this is how foolish fallen man is. This is how arrogant fallen man is. This is how egotistical fallen man is. The truth is that you have a better chance of stepping out onto I-5 on your feet and stopping a speeding semi coming full speed ahead at you with your bare hands than you do of thwarting or threatening God's will, plan, or purposes. Friends, the motivation behind the Tower of Babel was pride. And thus we have to understand that this is, yeah, this is ancient history, but it's more than ancient history. This is present reality for sinful man. It's present reality. The spirit of Babel is alive and well in our society today. People are still prideful. People are still cavalier. People are still self-centered. People are still egotistical. People are still vain. People still defy God and live as if they're His equal. People still try to believe in a God who's exactly like them. And people still fall short of God's glory, earning nothing for themselves but judgment and wrath. And someone might say, well, you know, my God is a God of love. My God doesn't condemn anyone. My God doesn't judge. And the truth is, I would say I agree with that. You are completely right. Your God doesn't judge. Your God doesn't condemn because your puny God doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination or she, who knows what people believe. She is just a figment of your wild imagination. It's just a reflection of you and your values. That's where pride leads. That's what fallen man wants. That's what the vanity of the heart leads to. What senseless vanity to pretend that there's a God who is equal to the God of Scripture. Imagine walking into Microsoft's headquarters and saying, I'm I'm here to see the new CEO. And they say, new CEO? What, what, What new CEO? We don't have a new CEO and you say, well, in my, in my heart of hearts, I believe that there is a new CEO here at Microsoft. At which case they would say, uh, just go ahead and leave, right? And you say, the CEO that I believe in would never ask me to leave. You would be laughed out of the building. And you'd probably need to pay a visit to the psychiatrist. That's a small reflection A small illustration of how ridiculous it is to think that you can make God in your own image. That is foolishly putting faith in your imagination rather than in reality. But don't think that that doesn't happen. Because it happens all the time. And that's where pride leads so many. The good news is, as Nebuchadnezzar would say in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. James would say, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Humility is central to the Christian life. In fact, if you consider what Christ did by stepping out of eternity, He exemplified humility. Humility is central to the Christian life. And I would say that if you're not growing in humility... You can't be growing as a Christian. 
Because it's so central to what being a Christian is all about. Friends, your life is not about you. And it is the height of foolishness to live your life as if your life is all about you. You can believe that your life is all about you if you must. I can lead a horse to water, but I can't make it drink. But I'll tell you, That your life is about something more significant. Your life is about something more important. Your life is about something bigger than yourself and your legacy. If you are living for the sake of leaving a legacy of greatness or whatever, you are shortchanging yourself. What's the purpose of the car? To to drive, right? Right? Uh, to, to, to move places, to, to, to safely, let's add that word, to safely bring you from one place to the other. Think of the Ford Pinto. One of the things that a car has to be able to do, I see some of you still remember it. Some of you don't know what I'm even talking about. I, I'll explain. The Pinto uh, didn't do everything that a car is supposed to do because it wouldn't necessarily safely bring you from point A to point B. See, one of the things that happens when you're out driving is that it's possible for you to be rear-ended. It's possible for you to be rear-ended. And sometimes the Pinto, if it was even lightly bumped from behind, would burst into flames. It would, it would blow up. And so it couldn't fulfill its purpose. It couldn't do what it was designed to do. And so Ford scrapped it, essentially reaching the point where they said, forget it. Let's forget it. The culture hasn't forgotten it, right? Some of you guys remember it. But Ford wishes you would. They wish that you would forget about it. Friend... You are made in the image of God. Every single one of you. You are made in the image of God. And as someone who has been made in the image of God, you exist for the sake of glorifying God. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are a Christian or not. That is still your purpose to glorify God in your life. If your legacy doesn't start with something like, Seth or or Craig or Michael or Kurt or Dusty will be remembered as somebody who, who loved and feared and lived for the glory of God above all things, or me for that matter, then maybe it's better just to be forgotten. Because that's our primary purpose. And if there is any measure of success for our lives... This is the number one thing. Did you live for the glory of God? Friends, don't waste your lives living for something lesser. Don't waste your lives living for your glory. Don't waste your life trying to build a legacy of greatness or powerfulness or whatever about yourself. Walk humbly before the Lord. All your days, walk humbly before Him. Remain humble before Him. And remember that to grow in humility and to grow in the desire to glorify God rather than yourself are sure signs of growing in the likeness of Christ. To grow in humility and to grow in the desire to glorify God. That's what it means to grow in Christ's likeness. And that is the goal. To live for your legacy is to live for your own glory, and to live for your own glory is to waste your life. So how does God respond to these people? Does he, does he flood them? Does he think to himself, oh no, look what, what, look what they've done. What am I going to do? I sure never saw this coming. Does he even care? about the fact that they are sinning against him. Let's continue, verses 5-7. to And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
The first thing we see here is God's awareness of their sin. He's completely aware of what's going on. He's completely aware of their sin. Their actions aren't hidden from Him. Their motivation isn't a secret to Him. God is completely aware of what is going on in their hearts before this even crossed their minds. God is aware of sin. More importantly than that, God cares about sin. The second thing we see is that God cares about their sin. He doesn't just throw His hands up in frustration and say, man, they've they've blown it again. I I gave them a a chance. I gave them a whole new world and they, they blew their opportunity once again. No. He cares about it. He cares about it because He cares about them. And so He takes action against their plans. And do you see the irony here? Man has this great plan to become equal to God. Man has this great plan to build his way up to God. But look at verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Man wanted to go up to to be God's equal. No, God came down. And it's not that God had to literally come down to see what's going on. That's That's a figure of speech which is there for the sake of, I think it would be there for the sake of adding a bit of humor or irony to the story. But the picture is of this giant, giant person who's down on his hands and knees looking through this microscope to see this itty-bitty flea circus that's trying to threaten his plans. God's response to the sin of the people is to mix up and confuse their languages so that they can't communicate with one another. And so what happens when you have different languages? Well, if, if I'm in a room with, with a bunch of people who are speaking German, for example, uh, I don't understand a single word they're saying. I'm going around looking for somebody who speaks English, right? And I'm going to go and hang out with them because I can understand them. Or French. I speak a little bit of French. But you have to see that what God does here in response is an act of unmerited, incredible grace on His part. He could have destroyed the people. And to do so would have been just. I mean, He promised that He wouldn't bring a worldwide flood again, but He didn't say that He wouldn't bring a local flood. And here they are, all gathered in one local place. That's one of the disadvantages of living on a plane. Water gathers. And too much water doesn't run off real fast. He could have destroyed them with a local flood. So why doesn't he destroy them? Because doing so would not have fulfilled his will, his plans, or his purposes for humanity. These people... Despite the greatness of their rebellion, despite the greatness of their efforts, these people didn't threaten or thwart God's plans. Even if they felt like they could. Even if it looked on the surface like they were going to. For God to give them different languages and to confuse their speech was sufficient for them to, to, to cause them to disperse. The compassion and the mercy of God toward unrepentant sinners is incredible. It is truly incredible. That's what this gives us a picture of. These people are just unrepentant sinners. And God is not perplexed. God is not paralyzed by man's sinful rebellion against Him. You want to know how to make God laugh? Anybody know how to make God laugh? Tell them how great your plans are and how you don't need them. He laughs at the futility of human efforts. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 says this, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Is that not what's going on here? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. By the way, that's Jesus against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Man desires to be autonomous. And the psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
God knew the horrible potential for fallen man. He knew that left to his own, man would never turn to him. Man would never obey him. He knew that left to their own, they would only become more and more wicked. He knows that the rebellious heart is always seeking new ways to defy God. All you need to do is look around and you see this happening all the time. People inventing new ways of expressing their evil desires. Some new technology comes out and it doesn't take any time at all before somebody figures out how to abuse it for the sake of doing something sinful. By confusing their languages. God not only forced them to do what He had commanded, but maybe more significantly than that, He gave them time. He let them live, giving them the opportunity to repent and to turn their hearts to Him in faith. And this is the grace of God toward everyone who rejects Him. If you still have a heartbeat, the time for you to turn your heart to the Lord, and receive His mercy is now. Be reconciled to God. And there is only one way to be reconciled unto God. If you have even the slightest desire to be forgiven, you cannot wait because your desire might be gone by tomorrow. Your desire might be gone in five minutes. So repent of your rebellion and believe in Jesus Christ while you can, while that desire is fresh in your heart. He will forgive you. He will forgive anyone who comes to Him in repentance and faith. He'll give you more grace than you could possibly use in 5,000 lifetimes. For those who believe, this is a reminder for us to guard our motivations because that's what God is looking at. He, he's, he's not as concerned with our actions as He is with our motivations. That's why when Jesus said, you know, if, if you look at a woman lustfully, that's the same as actually committing adultery because all of your sinful actions start in the heart. And so God is looking at the heart. And that's what He cares about. And He's aware of it. So guard your heart. Guard your motivations. Keep them pure and keep them God-honoring. Let's continue, verses 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So here we see the verdict. I mean, this is kind of a summarization of everything that that happens as a result of, of God's actions. Can sinful man threaten or thwart God's will? No. Can sinful man threaten or thwart God's purposes? No. Can sinful man threaten or thwart God's plans? No. No, no, no. Even the greatest efforts of sinful man will never even begin to change or derail God's will, plan, and purposes. And to even try is like playing chicken with a train that's coming right toward you. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. God will win. Friends, this isn't just ancient history. Babel and Babylon are a spiritual reality to this day because pride and because ego and because self-centeredness and vanity are all realities deeply, deeply embedded in the human heart even to this day. Now we know that Babylon would eventually grow into this great giant empire that would antagonize and chastise and persecute God's people. God would use Babylon For his purposes, though, he would use them to chastise and discipline Israel when Israel fell away from God, turned away from God. But Babylon is more than just a worldly empire. 
They, they became more than, than a worldly empire. The name Babylon refers to a spiritual system that is alive and well in our world today. It refers to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan on earth. When, when James says, don't be friends with the world, that's what he's talking about. The world is synonymous with Babylon. Babylon is the world. The prideful and immoral and corrupt system which stands against God, which defies God, which hates the Lord Jesus Christ, and which continues to chastise and persecute God's people to this day. In our passage today, Babel sought to build this tower to heaven. It's ironic then that in Revelation chapter 18, verse 5, it is the sins of Babylon which reach up to heaven. They succeed in getting there. Their sins pile all the way up to heaven. Babylon in the book of Revelation is referred to as a harlot, as a prostitute who will one day be forced to drink the cup of God's wrath down to every last drop. That's talking about everyone who has not trusted in Jesus. Everyone who has not placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. Which underscores the importance of examining yourselves and making sure of your election. Making sure that you truly do believe in Jesus. And when I say believe, I mean He is your hope. He is your only hope. He's not just a source of hope. He is all you have to stand on before God. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, you're secure. But if there's something else that you're trusting in, if you're trusting in your own goodness, if you're trusting in your own works, if you're trusting in your own efforts, you are standing on sinking sand. Maybe the easiest way to make sure that you are in Christ is just to ask yourself, am I really living for the glory of God? Is that really something that I even care about? Is that something that that matters to me? Examine your hearts. What, What is your greatest treasure in life? What is your most treasured possession? Is it Christ or is it fill in the blank? It it could be anything. What are you living for? What's your hope? What are you clinging to? Whose name do you desire to make known? Yours or God's? The nations of the world may seek to unite together and create a one-world government in the book of Revelation under the leadership of the Antichrist, they succeed. And one of their purposes will be to stand together against God. But make no mistake about it, the nations will come together in peace and harmony again one day, but not on our terms. It'll be a work of God. It won't be a work of man. In Christ, the nations already are united in a sense, those who have repented and who have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ are one in Him. Regardless of national boundaries, we are one in Christ, regardless of language or nation. But there will be a day when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who have trusted in Jesus Christ during their time on earth stand together in heaven before the throne of God, worshiping and singing praises to Him forever and ever. Looking back at Psalm 2 again, verse 8. The Father says to the Son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Again, this is the Father speaking to the Son. This is God the Father speaking to Jesus. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And that is a spiritual reality right now among believers. And one day, it will also be a physical reality. Christ will return and He will reign. We saw this in Psalm 2 also, that He shall shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He will reign over all the nations one day. He is coming back. He will return and He will reign. The truth of the matter is, friends, you cannot get to heaven and you cannot get to God on your own terms and conditions. You cannot get to God on your own efforts. Neither 
Your works nor your deeds will get you to heaven, no matter how good you might think they are. The truth is that the only way for sinful man, and that's all of us, the only way for sinful man to go up to heaven is for God to come down to us. Man tried to build a tower up to heaven to be like God, but instead, for reconciliation between fallen man and holy God to take place, God came down to man and became like one of us. That's what Christmas is all about. You and I and everyone else in humanity were all born corrupt. We were all born with an unholy, sinful nature that was opposed to God. When Adam sinned, it changed his nature. And the way that biology works is that the nature of the parent passes on to the child. And so the nature, the sinful nature of Adam passed on to all of his descendants. And apart from God's work of redemption in us, all that we have done is rebel and rebel against God and defy God, and we have earned nothing but His wrath. We have all earned nothing but judgment. But in the greatest act of love and the greatest act of compassion ever known to man, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, God stepped out of eternity. And he took on flesh. And he became fully God and fully man. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the will of the Father, never straying for one second from the Father's will. And he was nailed to a cross for it. Upon the cross, the sins of all who would trust in in Christ alone for salvation were imputed to him. They were transferred to him. And he bore the wrath of the Father against those sins. And the Father was pleased to crush His Son. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ needed to be imputed to all who would trust in Christ. And that would include people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation who would turn from their sinful ways and turn their hearts to Christ. God redeemed a people for Himself and for His glory. And that's why, friends, one of the strongest pieces of evidence that God has changed your heart is if you are living for His glory rather than your own. And you're doing it because that's what you want to do. That's what you want your legacy to be. A legacy of faithfulness unto God above everything else. His people will dwell with Him, not in Babylon, but in the new Jerusalem someday. Those in Babylon, that is, those who reject Christ, those who reject God's grace, those who reject God's forgiveness in Christ, those in Babylon will spend eternity in a lake of fire. And that means that every single person on the face of the planet has a decision to make. To live as citizens of Babylon or to turn their hearts to God and live as a citizen of heaven. God's purposes are certain. God's purposes will be fulfilled. Sinful man will never halt or hinder God's eternal purposes. Sinful man will never impede or intercept or interfere with God's plans. So friends, do not live in a way that reveals that you think that you might be the one exception to that. Don't let pride prevent you from living for your first and primary purpose, and that is to live for the glory of God alone. The Word of God tells us in 1 Peter that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before the Lord. Walk humbly before the Lord. Don't waste your life on you. Don't waste your life on self-centeredness. Don't waste your life on being prideful. I urge you today to walk humbly before the Lord all of your days and to live for His glory, to guard your motivations and to truly 
and wholeheartedly worship the God whom you could not earn or work your, your way up to, but who came down to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we remember that it is always profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And Father, the one thing that would inhibit that work in us is pride. So Lord, we lay our pride down before you. We confess that we have sinned against you. We confess in the silence of our hearts, Lord, that our deeds, our thoughts, our speech don't reflect don't reflect the desire to, to live for you as it should. And so God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you are making all things new, for putting a new heart in us, a heart that desires and strives to grow in the likeness of Christ and to glorify Christ. Father, that is our our greatest purpose and help it to be our greatest desire. Give us that, uh, that desire, Lord, that we may desire nothing above you and live for nothing more than to glorify you. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for Christmas, for stepping down out of eternity, taking on flesh, and doing what needed to be done to redeem us. Teach us, Lord, to live in light of that reality, the reality that we belong to you for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.